you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real episode 492 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and this is actually the first episode i'm recording in 2020 i've been on a bit of a hiatus as of late working on the youtube channel and also planning a shitload of wrong real episodes i think i've got seven or eight on the calendar over the next like month or two so there's a, a bunch of stuff coming your way and to bring in the new year, ring in the. I, I, I feel like we've we've we're long past the window of talking about the new year, which is kind of the, the premise of the latest Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like you can't say Happy New Year like two weeks later. But for this first episode in 2020, we've got returning guest and my producing partner Adam Rakoff for an Osamu Dezaki double feature. I always love talking animation with Adam, in particular Japanese animation. So Adam, I'm very excited for this topic today. But welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, it's uh, 2020, which uh, I was just having this debate with uh, somebody. It's really not the beginning of the new decade because it's, this is the, the end of the previous year one. Yeah, of the previous decade. I've gotten a big debate about this. No, it's, um, look, look at a number line, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. And if you don't know what a number line is, then go back to elementary school. But yeah, it's. Uh, I'm just going to say it's the first recording of 2020. But as yeah. far as like which decade we're in, I will let other people have that debate. But obviously, yeah, in 2000, it's like yeah, 21st century. It's like well, not really. You got to wait till 2001. Then yeah. you're in the 21st century. There's no year zero, as they say in Seinfeld. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's uh, it's hard not to think of this as the beginning of the 2020s because it kind of feels that way. But really, the way numbering is set up, we're in the 10th year. Yeah. Of I mean, if I do a highlight of the 1970s podcast, I'm going to include 1970 in that conversation, even yeah. though technically it shouldn't. But if it, <laughs> right. it's just numer- just in terms of the optics, it's just going to be part. Yes. Yeah. So. And also, I think the interesting thing is that if you look back through history, when you think about decades and sort of trends culturally, films, music, they don't tend to really begin until like the, let's say, the disco era you think of as being in the 70s, but really it, it hit hard in the mid-70s through the early 80s, and that's sort of pretty common, you know, to, to see clothing trends, music trends, the sort of, they begin in the, in the sort of early to mid part of the decade and 
sort of carry over into the beginning yeah, of the Bill Scurry and I were talking about this in the last episode. Like, what is yeah. the last movie of the 80s? And, or like, what is the last yeah. movie of the 70s? Like, a lot of people say that they all laugh at Peter Bogdanovich is one of the last movies of the 70s, even though it came in 1981. Or, like, if you look at, like, Lethal Open 2, which I think came out in 1990s. Is that an 80s movie or is that a 90s it, it, movie? So I yeah. thought it was Summer 89. Or maybe yeah. it was Summer 89, yeah. I, yeah. I, might, I might have my, my numbers off. But in yeah. any case, the point is, like, you do get these movies that feel like they they belong to the earlier decade or even if you look yeah. at like Diamonds Are Forever that was like 1971 is that a 60s Bond film or is that a because it yeah. feels like a 60s Bond film not like a 70s Bond film or maybe it was 70 right. I, this is, this is, I get into dangerous territory when I start uh, <laughs> running my mouth without actually having hard data in front of me but I do have a lot of hard data in front of me about Osamu <laughs> Dezaki <laughs> yes <laughs> that's right <laughs> but before we get into all that stuff sure. catch us up because uh, it's been a while since you, and I think the last time you and I did anything was our Masters of the Universe live stream. So yeah. uh, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy as of late, besides yeah, that was... nearly dying from the bubonic plague? Yeah, I had a pretty nasty cough the past couple of weeks, right after, right around New Year's, and it just would not go away. I'm still occasionally coughing, so hopefully uh, I'll be good for the next hour or so but yeah it's uh it's pretty bad it's this weird weather we're having in new york it's just you know it's hot we had like 70 degree weather a week and a half ago and now it's like 28 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, all of this is not good and then this past weekend the, the heat went out in our building temporarily so we were all like freezing and yeah it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's life in a in new york you know life in an apartment building but yeah, it's uh, I, I've been yeah keeping busy with a lot of obviously holiday craziness. But um, I'm working on a a television series with Matthew Modine right now that um, we sort of produced and shot a few pilot episodes. I can't say too much yet, but we're having some talks with some big names in the streaming space, including some new players, and we're hoping, crossing our fingers, uh, that they will that one of them will will like it and want to perhaps. Uh, work with us on it so more to come on that but it's been keeping me pretty busy sort of getting you know pitching this getting it out to various platforms one that we did actually um pitch to is a new service called quibi um they passed on it which is actually good because uh, it's called quibi for a reason it's short for quick bites and it's the platform that jeffrey katzenberg and meg whitman are launching and it's all basically short form content not necessarily gotcha. short films but content that's under like 10 minutes in length and it's a mobile only platform which is a first so it won't be available on tvs and uh, other large format you know viewing uh, platforms it's really designed specifically as short form content that you can watch on you know a, a tablet or smartphone and uh, they just actually announced their launch at CES and they were very interested in a while for a while and we kept going back and forth but ultimately I think that um, they weren't the right fit anyway because we really have what you would consider to be a 30 minute show gotcha. what we're trying. it's like a documentary series and their um their platform as i said is is you know they're hoping for content that's between five and ten minutes it's for the short attention span uh generation <laughs> that is uh looking for something to watch quickly it's oh, a weird thing where people make fun of this era as like the era for short attention spans but what i've noticed is a parallel trend of people liking really long content as well. Like like the Joe Rogan Experience, which is the wildly successful podcast, is a three-hour show more often than yeah. not. 
and it's very popular. And then you have other shows that are like, you know, incredibly short and quick. Like, you know, if I do a little YouTube video breaking down an episode of TV, I might talk about it for five or 10 minutes and boom, it's out the door. I'm not comparing myself to Joe Rogan, but I feel like there's, there's room in this world for short form and long form. It's cool seeing how people really are yearning for the deep dives into particular topics and are willing to yeah. sit down for a three-hour conversation about being vegan or lifting weights or whatever the right, case right. might be. They're, they just, yeah. they're, they're, they're on their commute they're in their, or they're in their cubicle at work, and they, just, they, they don't want to have to constantly be looking for new shit to listen to, so it's almost a relief. Yes, I can put this in and just let it play while I go yeah. about, my, about my business. Yeah, I mean, they're – and it's, it's – it's an interesting platform, I have to admit. It is they are doing longer form content, but in small like they'll they'll have feature length films, but they'll be basically delivered in small little increments that you watch, you know, a couple minutes at a time. So it's just a it's it's a new idea. They're trying something different. There's so many platforms out there right now that they're just trying to be they're trying to differentiate themselves by doing it this way. Yeah, mobile only though I'm skeptical. Yeah. Like, I get really annoyed if something doesn't have an app that I can't install on my TV or on my Xbox One. Like I was watching uh, the Criterion app uh, for, I'm doing an episode on Saturday about some Westerns and they had this movie called The Westerner and I was like, fuck yeah. I was like, I don't think I'm looking forward to buy it or whatever. Right. But it just drives me crazy watching it on my iPad when I could just as easily be watching it on my TV. But it's like, just make a deal with Xbox or Microsoft and get your damn app on the fucking Xbox One so I can watch this like a civilized person. Yeah, I know. I mean, some sometimes they'll let you push you know like apple's airplay will let you push it from your phone or ipad if you have an apple tv to that to watch but yeah. some of the apps block that so you can't always yeah. do it so because they really just want you to watch it on uh, you know a portable device which is sort of frustrating but anyway you know for all this um and it's interesting they did a, a quibi made a deal with steven spielberg which is interesting because he was so against you know he's so such a huge proponent of large format theatrical experience viewing and here he is now working on or you know executive producing a show that will be on a you know six inch screen for most people <laughs> so it's a it's a brave new world everyone's getting in on it and uh, more and more yeah you know with NBC's Peacock we're just getting inundated with various streaming platforms and uh, I, I, I don't know when it will end <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's going to be a very exciting time for people like myself who rant and rave about different shows and different forms of content. Like, I, I love the fact that there's such an embarrassment of riches and so many options to explore, yeah. but not everybody's going to make it to the finish line. Some of these uh, no. platforms are going to get eaten alive by the competition. So yeah, well, HBO not- Max... I think it's going to do just fine. Disney Plus is going to do just fine. Netflix is obviously going to do just fine. Yeah. CBS All Access... We shall see. <laughs> they're not- I'm getting pumped for Picard, but you know what? Uh, you know, outside of their Star Trek offerings, there's not a lot on that uh, on that platform that excites me. So yeah. I've been binging the hell out of some Star Trek content, though. Like, while I am very skeptical of Alex Kurtzman, I remain a deep, passionate lover of Star Trek as the universe. Right. And it's just awe-inspiring in the '90s what they were able to accomplish in terms of having, having Deep Space Nine and Voyager, as well as feature films with the Next Generation crew, all going all at once and not contradicting each other, not stepping on each other's toes, all working together as part of like, each one was like a little piece of like, of like, like tiles in a mosaic. 
And I, I think uh, the youngins don't quite know how good it was for the Star Trek brand back in the day. But also just, I'm, I've been watching all the Seven of Nine episodes. Any episode about Seven of Nine, Data, or like Picard's relationship to like his vineyard, like anything related to the show, I've been trying right. to watch those episodes. And I've been looking up a lot of lists, recommending different episodes. And I've just been, it's just been like, swimming in like in a really warm ocean it's just been so much fun revisiting all these classics and it just but it's also a brutal reminder of just how much better star trek used to be yeah i was doing the same thing especially on being under the weather uh late at night coughing it's like i needed something to do when i couldn't sleep so i would just go back and binge those voyager and ds9 episodes i watched a bunch of there's there's a few uh episodes about section uh, 31. 31. Yeah. That, which some, when they were actually were a clandestine secretive organization, yeah. as yeah. opposed which, to just like, I don't, I don't know. They've been turned into something, something else in discovery. So yeah, yeah, it was, that was, it was introduced in DS nine. That was where the, the concept first uh, came about. And then of course it, 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 there was some, some, they used it in enterprise, which I don't know if you've really seen enterprise. There are some really good enterprise episodes as well, but, uh, which is a Scott Bakula series that, only lasted four seasons. The only Star Trek show to last four seasons. But um, yeah, it's it's been fun. I really I enjoy going back. My only gripe is on a 65 inch screen TV to watch these SD quality uh, Voyagers and DS9s is can it's they're so dark and muddy at times. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. It's really painful, and uh, I really again wish they would do what they did with the next generation and go back. I know that the cost is prohibited, you know, prohibitive with the with the the visual effects. But what they could do, and I don't want to get too off topic, but I really think why not go back and just restore the live action elements? And if you have to use the old visual effects shots, the limited number of shots that there were yeah, they're not that cut, many yeah cut them cut those in and at least let the actors look beautiful in high definition uh and, and on the sets and the production design all of that would look beautiful so i am i wish they would do something to allow these old uh 90s shows to live on for future generations because it, as you blow them up bigger and bigger and bigger screen tvs they just get uh, the, the the imperfections of them really start to it just feels like you're watching. But an old what has HS aged game. really well though is the scripts. I, I just I love the scripts and I yep. love the acting. And in the end, I mean, that's my one of my biggest complaints about new Star Trek is how the screenplays are just totally lacking in so many ways. And it just it blows my mind just the the range of topics explored and the way that every character. I mean, it's a lot like. Orville, but maybe we'll have to, well, we might have to press pause and then we'll come back once uh, Starship Picard is, because yeah. otherwise we're, um, we're just going to talk about Starship for the next two hours and we won't ever talk about yeah, no, Japanese I... animation. So let's press pause real quickly no and switch gears and talk about this guy, Usamu Dezaki, who yeah. a lot of people might not necessarily know immediately by name. And if you look up his Wikipedia entry and things like that, there's not a lot on him apart from the fact oh. that he was a notorious chain smoker. He died when he was 67. But he had the respect of his peers, and he introduced a lot of, I wouldn't say necessarily introduced, but he was known for a lot of stylistic innovations that a lot of other filmmakers embraced. And after kind of sharpening his teeth on a lot of great shows like Astro Boy or Lupin the Third, he eventually helped make some of the most popular manga ever be converted into feature films and TV shows. And the two we're going to be talking about today 
are what are known in America as Space Adventure Cobra and Golgo 13, the professional. The names are slightly different because of marketing reasons. Like people were worried that if you release a show called or a movie called Golgo 13, people are like, well, where are the other 12 Golgo movies? I want to see Golgo one through 12 first. Like you can't, what are you, what are you talking about? And so that in any event, I'm going to use the American titles just for the sake of convenience, but we're going to go just in chronological order, which I think is good because the, the movie I much prefer is Golgo 13. But let's talk first about Space Adventure Cobra. Let's talk a little business. I know where you can find a head worth one million tritium. One million tritium? There's only one head in the entire galaxy worth that much. Cobra? He's alive? Where is he? Right behind you. Yeah, that's right. I'm Cobra. You still looking to take my head? film from 1982 based on a very popular manga. The manga was uh, serialized from 1978 to 1984 and it was created by Buichi Terasawa. I hope I'm saying that kind of sort of vaguely, roughly correctly. Yeah, I'm so bad with pronouncing these names, so uh, I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, but with Osamu Dezaki, he directed the feature film in 82, but he also co-directed the show that followed from 82 to 83. So he's got his fingerprints all over this franchise, but I guess this is how we got the idea to even do this episode. You mentioned that you were buying the 4K Blu-ray, so yeah, for people out there right. who've never heard of Cobra, what is the concept of this yeah. of this space pirate? Yeah, I mean, this is a film that I saw um, in college. I saw a VHS. I think it was actually uh, in 98 that the U.S. VHS first came out, and somebody I knew in the animation department at RIT where I was going to school I had acquired, acquired a, a, a copy. It was the U.S. release, and um, I, I don't know if it was the full, like, original version or not. I can't remember. I, I watched it with uh, some people, and I just thought it was pretty, pretty cool, you know. And I, at the time, there weren't a lot of offerings in the U.S. That that, that late '90s period uh, in the U.S. for animation, there were 
it's kind of slim pickings, you know, in terms of U.S. animation outside of Disney. There was just wasn't a lot going on. And it was really before the, the CG boom had occurred. And so anytime there was something that you could watch, especially science fiction, uh, you know, from Japan, it was always exciting for me. And so and I was always late to, um, you know, animate to begin with. There just wasn't a lot of it where I was growing up. Yeah, because in the mid-90s, suddenly the video stores started carrying, like, yeah. they all carried the same, like, five or six Japanese animated movies. Right. So there was the beginning of, like, a boom. Luckily, they picked a lot of the great ones, like Vampire Hunter D and Akira and so on and so right. forth. But, yeah, so I guess for me, summer 95 was when I really got bitten by the Japanese animation bug. And also, that perfectly coincides with my starting to consume vast amounts of marijuana. So they, they went together <laughs> like the chocolate and peanut butter. It's a very psychedelic uh, story, uh, you know, the imagery. But yeah, um, so I remember in the fall, I read that, um, to my surprise, because I haven't seen it since that 98 viewing on VHS, um, to my surprise, it was announced that it was coming out on, on 4K Ultra HD from uh, a company called, uh, I think it's called Discotech. Um, from, yeah, Discotech. It's not one of the big players in the home media market, but they decided to uh, restore and not just restore it in 4K, but give it the HDR, high dynamic range treatment, which I have to say, watching this on my TV was just incredible. It looked uh, I'm definitely compared to what I recalled. It was incredible. The, the colors were so vivid. It was there was just it was completely cleaned up. It, it's just gorgeous. So uh, I recommend for anybody that has seen it or hasn't seen it, try to get your hands on uh, if you can, if you if you have the ability to play 4K media. Uh, it's not on any of the streaming platforms in 4K that I'm aware of. I think it's exclusive to this um, this disc version. Yeah, it's but one of the also, rare Blu-rays that I own. I don't buy a lot of physical media. But when I saw that that was available, I can't remember when it, but I was like, the professional's killer. I'm buying yeah. this sight unseen. I'm just going to roll the dice. Yeah, I think 2015 they released a standard Blu-ray, and then this just came out again in November. And I think I tweeted about it, and you saw it. And that's gotcha. When, okay, very that's cool. That's when the inception for this episode sort of Now, began. when you watch these classic yeah. Japanese animated movies, where do you stand on dubs versus subtitles? Uh, it's a very good question. So this release I watched, interestingly enough, I watched the English dub with subtitles, with the same English subtitles, and they're so different. It's the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. So <laughs> I just was like, because you can do that and you can watch it and read it and I mean, and listen to it. And what they decided to do for the dub is so different than the literal transla translation, probably because of the amount of words they have to get in, the actor has to say to match the pacing and the timing of the of the of the shots. But it was just very different, and it very it's a fun experiment. If you want to, if you've seen the movie a bunch of times, it, it's interesting to see. Now I don't know if either one is that accurate to the original, but with this film, um, that's how I viewed it. And then for 
uh, Gogo 13. It's way uh, different on Gogo 13 because yeah. I watched it dubbed a billion times growing up on uh, VHS and then on YouTube. Yeah. And then for this time, I watched it in Japanese with subtitles. And I, so, I remember it well enough to know precisely some of like, the, the line reads. And it, it was quite distinctive, but I really enjoyed watching Gogo 13 for the first time in Japanese just because I'd never seen a widescreen before. I'd never seen it like fully restored. And so I finally see, felt like I was seeing it for real for the first time. But with yeah. Space Adventure Cobra, for whatever reason, I just decided to watch the English dub and there's a weird rough charm to some of these English dubs from the 90s like Akira I can't watch Akira unless I get the shitty like late 80s English (laughs) dub because I need to hear Kaneda and Tetsuo talk a certain way or I'm just not having the Akira experience Space Adventure Cobra I'm less married to it but for whatever reason I decided to go dub for one subtitles for the other and I'm not quite sure which is better yeah I mean I think they're they're the type of movies that if you have the time, watch them both ways because you, you'll get a, di- a slightly different experience. Well, out animation of lends itself to being dubbed so much better than live action. Like yeah. I would never watch a live action dubbed movie unless it's like no. an Italian film where they just decided to shoot it with no sound to begin with so they could dub right. it however the hell they like. Like In that case, sure, watch it whatever language you choose. But with right. animation, it just it lends itself to dubbing very easily in ways that live action does not. It, I, yeah, I, I agree. And uh, yeah, I think too, the dubbed version for for both the main thing that you main thing i always take away is they just speak so fast you know i feel like there's just so much information or or dialogue that they have to cram in i don't know if that's a you know a difference in the the, from the how the language is spoken but it just always feels like they're speaking at a at a faster pace than than one would if they were speaking in english but anyway yeah it's uh it's a fun movie. I, I, I find it's it's very it's a little all over the place. Is all I can say. You know, it's all right. It, well, just as a, yeah. a little test, yeah. If you can, yeah, sure. summarize the story <laughs> of Space Adventure Cobra because it does it adapts the first arc in the manga series. Like the manga series, like a lot of them typically will have like you know much like in American comics, you'll have like five or six books in a row that tackle like a one big story and then it moves on to the next big chunk. So a lot of times, whether you're talking about Berserk or whatever, you'll have sh- like a season of a show or a feature film will tackle one of these story arcs from the books. And I know that I've not, I've only glanced at a couple of the, the manga, which have insanely yeah, have- sexy covers. The covers, like if you like TNA, the covers to the manga series are, they're absolutely fabulous. But what is the premise of the feature film Space Adventure Cobra? Well, the premise, it's kind of hard to describe because it, it sort of evolves as you go along. Like, you don't really know. There's no, they don't set you up with the premise in the beginning. Some movies, you kind of, you just go in this sort of linear fashion. You kind of know what the agenda is. But you travel along with this this hero, this uh, character, uh, Cobra. And, you know, he's kind of, as one critic put it, he's kind of part Han Solo, part Sean Connery era, James Bond and he's got this arm that can kind of magically transform into a, a, a gun, which I think they call the, the, the psycho the gun. The psycho gun. They actually, yeah. when they designed the character, they designed the arm first and the personality second. They just they wanted, they wanted that arm as part yeah. of the character. But he can turn it back into a human arm. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, he was he's presumed to be dead in the in the opening of the film, and uh, this uh, this bounty hunter. Um, you know, encounters him, falls in love with him, and she's really one of three twin sisters, which you learn about later, and who are sort of connected. And essentially, they go on a 
this woman, this, 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 this first sister that he Jane. falls in love with, Jane, they, she convinces him because he's this amazing space pirate. I don't know what you, what you they call, call him. They call him a pirate. I don't yeah. know if that's a poor translation, but yeah. he's, a, he's a rogue. He's a scoundrel. He's, yeah. a, he's an adventurer. <laughs> yeah, but he's got abilities, you know, again, beyond the He's got the a big-ass spaceship with a really yeah. cool robot chick who kind of gets him out of trouble periodically. And, oh, what? Or a lady armoroid. Or it's not just the armoroid lady, but anyway, she's this yeah. very sexy, cybernetic lady who flies him around space from, from one and adventure to the next. seems to have a bit of a crush on him as well. Without but, a doubt. Like, she yeah. like, it's like always like holding his head between her metallic yeah. breasts and her her heart, which looks like, like almost like an atom, like will start glowing and things like that. So, right, yeah. Right. They, they, there's definitely a more perverted version of this movie to be made. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, so she, Jane convinces, you know, uh, Cobra to, to help break one of her sisters out of a, uh, like a, a prison ship uh, on this planet. And he does, he follows her orders and goes in alone and uh, finds out though that she is actually, the sister is really not in prison. She's in love with the, the the antagonist of the film the uh, what do they call him Chris, Bo- Crystal Bo- Boy Bowie yeah, yeah some some call him, you see his name spelled differently in different places sometimes he's Crystal Bowie sometimes yeah. he's Crystal Boy but he's basically this terrifying metallic dude who can reach inside his own body and like turn any of his bones into these horrible weapons he's a really cool like, looking villain like spears almost yeah. yeah I mean in terms of character design it's like all right well, I can safely say I've never seen a villain that looks Anything like that. So yeah, he's a wildly yeah. original bad like guy. Like ten feet tall. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, Cobra uh, has a battle with him in the ship and barely, you know, escapes with his life. And uh, and in the process, uh, the sister of Jane uh, and I think this this sister was uh, is a Domin. Uh, oh, this is Catherine. Uh, yeah. Catherine. Yeah. Dominique's the, the other nice one. Is the other nice one right? Catherine secretly. Um, goes down to the surface where Jane is waiting and essentially tricks her and, and kills her. And, um, and Cobra just in time takes, takes her body back up into space in his ship. And, um, and then they're, they're informed by this sort of floating professor <laughs> in, in a bubble. <laughs> this is going to sound so strange is psychedelic no, that's why I, that's why i put, yeah. put it i'm putting yeah. it on you because the plot is so bananas and overstuffed yeah, that I, I was gonna let you summarize there's this <laughs> character who looks kind of like a little bit like one of the watchers from like the marvel universe he's like in a bubble like he's like yeah. by this sphere and he floats around space and he somehow communicates with cobra that jane's love is gone but the, the love has been passed on to his, her other sister uh dominique and tells him that he has to seek out the um, what is it the uh, the snow um, gorillas yeah I, is the is the translation that they use in the in the dubbed version and so he travels to this planet finds the snow gorillas who are led by the the second or the really in this case the third sister Dominique who is also in love with Cobra because her sister was in love with Cobra. Yeah, there's like a, a they, it's been foretold that these three yeah. sisters are all basically all part of one being that are going to fall in love with the same person. But the fact that Catherine is in love with this villain is throwing this whole prophecy out of whack. Like, because they, they're all kind of destined to go the same way because eventually they'll kind of re remerge or it, yeah. all, all they'll that stuff. It. Was yeah. making my head twist around and not trying to understand <laughs> what the hell is happening. But I do love Dominique. Like when you see Dominique, yeah. she's like 
nude with like these like star nipples, like caressing and riding this glowing horse. I'm just like, yeah. the imagery in this is just intoxicating. And you could watch a thousand American animated movies and never see anything as just like, we're just going to go for it. We're just going to present you with just un, unhinged, unrestrained imagination. And so that's yeah. for me part of the appeal of Space Adventure Cobra is just the unpredictable nature of the twists and turns and the wild character design and wild images that you would just never encounter ever in Western animation. Uh, I agree completely. And if there's one, even though it does sort of resemble other films, there's a little bit of sort of uh, Barbarella, a little bit of Zardoz, a little bit of Star Wars, a little bit of other uh, anime, but even though it has all of those elements, it, it's still a wholly original concept in, in terms of the, the story. Anyway, they go on, uh, they get attacked again by uh, Crystal Bowie or Boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because they say, the problem is this, that's a good example of the, the, vo the subtitle says Bowie, B-O-W-I-E, but it but, sounds like the, the actor says Boy. boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, and I looked up the Cobra wiki, and yeah. they said that even amongst like the diehard like fan community, there's some debate over Bo Bowie versus <laughs> Boy. So yeah, just it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, say it however you like. Yeah, David Bowie. There you go. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so they uh, basically uh, Crystal Bowie eventually kills the second good sister who also fell in love with Cobra Dominique by throwing one of his bones like a javelin. Uh, and is piercing her through the chest, and uh, because the, they're on this sort of snow planet, and it's sort of there's I don't know there was some random earthquake or something that causes the ground to 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 fall apart. So Cobra again narrowly escapes with his life and is able to reach um, Dominique and bring her you know back as well uh, to the ship, and uh, and then again this professor. Topperoff, I think is how you say it, or um, uh, informs them that they have to go to their home planet um, to prevent the third sister, the only surviving sister, from from essentially becoming queen of that planet. And if she does, because she's in love with Crystal Boy, then there essentially that will allow him control, and he'll use that power to essentially destroy the entire galaxy. Yeah, That's be Emperor Palpatine, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And that they control this guild, or they call it, they call it a guild, is that what it is? Um, uh, they control multiple galaxies. So to them, destroying one galaxy is a show of their force. It's not just a planet. They're going to destroy the entire galaxy. It's kind of... Why a, not? Go big or go yeah, home. Exactly. <laughs> so ultimately... Uh, without, I don't, maybe you don't want to spoil the ending, but, um, Cobra has to, uh, beat the, uh, uh, the final sister, Ka uh, Catherine and, da um, I was going to say Bowie, Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> to the planet. And at that point there's a final confrontation and maybe I won't give away the, the, the ending ending, but, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, everything works out at the end. And um, I do recommend for people who like anime or science fiction or just like films of this era from 1982. I, I love this period of time because in not just animation, but in films in general. I just think there was a lot of really interesting 
uh, unique things being Especially produced. in sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. I mean, the, the, lo- the more time goes by and the more we kind of curate and catalog all the sci-fi and fantasy from this period. Obviously, this was a true golden age for fans yeah. of those genres. And you could say, oh, well, it got started because of Star Wars, or got started because of whatever, got started because of Conan, whatever the case might be. There's just something in the water in the late 70s, early 80s, or like, you know, D&D was coming into its own. Video games were starting to explode under the scene. There's just a lot of exciting stuff in the overall kind of creative atmosphere of the planet, and Space Adventure Cobra is just yet another example of that. But like for me, I just, I, I love how fluid and beautiful the animation is. The action, the way Osamu Dezaki does action, it's like there's this one one bit that I've seen Tony Stella post as a gif before on Twitter where you just see him running from right side of the screen to left and he's going through like 30 guys at once and he's punching and he's kicking and he's vaulting and he's dodging but it's like you just sit there with your jaw just dropping 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 you're just in awe of how stunningly choreographed and beautifully fluid the animation is and you can see and appreciate every little morsel of it there's no shaky cam it's it's just Every, every, they make every effort to make the action as beautiful and exciting as humanly possible. And that just happens over and over and over again throughout the, uh, the movie where the choreography is so stunning. And also I love how uh, Osama Duzaki breaks down his action scenes sometimes where he'll use split screens to emphasize different pieces. He'll slow down certain parts to emphasize and then he'll allow like, kind of like a distending time. And then he'll allow things to kind of catch up and speed up really quickly. Then he has these really cool freeze frames where the image, and this is a lot in Golgo 13, where the freeze frames will dissolve into what he calls postcard memories. But it basically almost looks like a hand-drawn illustration from the original manga. And I love it. It's always a, a visual reminder. You know, this is a cartoon. You're having fun, so on and so forth. But just remember, this came from hand-drawn illustration on a page, Japanese manga, et cetera, and so forth. So I just, I, I absolutely love his approach to action and as strong as space adventure Cobra is and as erotic as space Adventure, I mean, cause they're just beautiful girls all over the place in this most of the time in a state of undress, he magnifies that by a thousand for the day <laughs> next movie. So say you're a young sci-fi fan, but you have basically, you've kept your interest in sci-fi and fantasy to 21st century kind of basically Lord of the Rings onward make Mm. the case for why some young stoner should go back and check out some of these early 80s japanese animated movies in particular space adventure cobra what 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 sets them apart from something they might see today and say they think they're super cool because they watch rick and morty and they watch archer and they're up to speed on a variety of fronts like what what is so strong and unique about the specific flavor that a movie like this offers well i mean first and foremost i think that what I love about this era was this was the heyday of, well, really the last decade of traditional cell animation where you were drawing on, uh, sometimes they used paper, but in most cases they were drawing on actual clear cells and painting on the back of them. It's called like cellophane acetate or something like that. Yeah. And then you would layer that on a background and then you would be shooting this with a 35 millimeter camera overhead, uh, on this, what they usually call like an Acme, animation crane and essentially photographing each frame and then you know editing that together uh, in an analog manner and so to if you think about the complexity of that compared to how animation is done today it's just such a slow monotonous time-consuming process but it 
create such a unique visual aesthetic that I just adore. And I was just actually out of out of curiosity looking on eBay to see if any original cells from Space Adventure Cobra were available. And I found, I think, two that were uh, up for sale. And they're beautiful. I mean, they're worthy of framing. I think they were selling for around 150 to $250. But, uh, you know, to find a, a, an actual cell or frame that was used in the movie is kind of cool. I know you have some cells and frames from other films. I do. So. I have some like Fire and Ice and I Married a Strange yeah. Person. And, yeah, so I, I am a fan of collecting cells. Yeah, they're just great little pieces. It, it it's sort of like a true artifact or um, you know piece of film history, if you will, because it was actually used in you know kind of like if you had a prop from a live action movie. This is the equivalent of that. So uh, I love that visual look. And this was actually, uh, if you again on this new uh, 4K release, there are some bonus features. Uh, not a lot. I would have loved some audio commentaries. That would have been amazing from some. Uh, film historians or 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 people that really sort of have been inspired. What what, what if you were watching it and it had yeah. Japanese commentary and you had to have subtitles for the commentary as well as subtitles <laughs> from the movie and you had to try to find a way to keep them separate? <laughs> that would not be easy at all. But uh, but it did have um, what it did have was a uh, uh, it had the original trailers which were really interesting to watch uh, the Japanese theatrical trailers that were promoting its release. Uh, those were subtitled, which the subtitles were hilarious on that as well. Just the way the literal transa- translations for things. But what, what I found interesting, and I didn't realize this, is that this was not only, um, uh, a, at least in, in Japan, a 3D um, picture, you know, an old-fashioned sort of 3D interesting. Uh, stereoscopic um, release. Uh, they used they did use computers to aid in that sort of um, – sort of creation of a 3d layered system and the and also it's the very first ever anime movie to use dolby stereo sound and they promoted that very prominently in all of the original theatrical trailers so this is 1982 dolby was a new thing at the time i think star wars was one of the very first films to use that in its theatrical release and many theaters weren't even equipped for stereo this is for the youngins out there, this is a period when a lot of theaters and a lot of films were just produced with monoral soundtracks, meaning one channel. That's how they yeah, were one recorded. big-ass speaker behind the screen, yeah. basically. And, <laughs> and that's how they recorded, and that's how they were mixed. So it was now with 7.1, and I think there's even like 10.1. You know, there, it, there's it's we're in we're spoiled <laughs> by the quality of sound and all the channels and the the different tracks that you can. Uh, uh, here for different types of sound effects and music and and dialogue, but yeah, this was a big deal at the time uh, for when it was originally released theatrically. And the funny thing too about it is that it, for whatever reason, I don't think it was a huge hit in its initial release, but it did take quite a while for it to come to the United States theatrically. It didn't get released till August twentieth, nineteen ninety five, in the United States. Because it was pieces of it are in this. I've never seen the video, but from nineteen ninety one, this Matthew Sweet video called "Girlfriend." Yes. So if you're a diehard Matthew Sweet fan, I've never heard of Matthew Sweet, but apparently the video was well was highly watched. So you know Space Adventure Cobra, even if you weren't able to identify it. Exactly. It took them so for it to get a uh, theatrical release. In the United States, it took uh, you know 13 years, and that's when a whole new audience found it. And then in 1998, as I mentioned before, it got a VHS release in the United States. Now I'm sure there were bootleg copies 
that were coming over before it got a theatrical release. But um, the, anyway, the Blu-ray also, or the 4K Blu-ray, also has the original international opening and international ending, which essentially is um, just, if, for those who like this kind of thing, it's, it's the same opening sequence, the kind of James Bond-esque you know, track with all the animation, but it has all the credits in English overlaid in English, not in Japanese. So depending on which version uh, you would like to see, and the same with the ending, it has the, the credits in English uh, with the English spelling and not the Japanese characters. So they just kind of tried to give you as much as they had in terms gotcha. of uh, content. The only other interesting thing that they had on the extra features was a... Um, an HDR comparison, which again is the high dynamic range. Um, it's a new technology. They showed side by side split screen of what the non or SDR version and HDR version, and it really does show you how much more vivid the colors just pop. It's it's quite an impressive feat to see these these old animation films in particular because they're painted beautifully with such vivid colors a lot of that gets lost in and in muddied you know in transfers yeah. to video and, and everything. like scenes yeah. where that really pays off like there's this great little club sequence in this it's very brief but you get yeah. a taste of what you're going to see a lot more of in the next movie but you have this wild club sequence where everybody's faces are all distorted and it makes you feel like you're actually on hallucinogenic i was like yeah. god Damn, this is incredibly well done. I couldn't believe just how gorgeous and, once again, how fluid the animation was yeah. during those brief club sequences. Or that scene where um, uh, the lady, uh, Armin, well, how do you say her name? Uh, Armoroid. Armoroid, yeah. Um, she's like playing like in a like a futuristic accordion while Cobra's <laughs> yeah. like <laughs> healing on some floating bed. It's like really trippy, you know. It's, it's super just, psychedelic. Like this, yeah. the '60s influences are all over. I think this director's in his like early '40s at this point, so it makes sense he'd have a lot yeah. of '60s influences. But like I, I read that he was like really inspired by movies uh, starring like John Pell Balmando, like The Man from Rio and Breathless, and he really was into like Catherine Deneuve movies and things like that. And he loved Star Trek. He just, you can just tell this guy, he is a 60s guy in terms of the pop culture that he was consuming. And as you, you mentioned before, Barbarella. And mm. if anything, like, yeah, I mean, I, I know I keep saying this, and I promise we're going to get to a GoGo 13 at some point, but <laughs> you'll see that even heightened even more so in the next one. But I, I love the 60s influences, and I, yeah. I think it's kind of, it's a pastiche of all the various things that he's inspired by, but he makes it, as you mentioned, totally his own. It's a unique creation, but it has all these astonishing influences written all over it. And I think the other interesting thing, I think, for people that may not know much about this period or anime of this period, it doesn't actually feel like a lot of anime of this period uh, uh, or in general. It actually has a very Western – I mean the animation is consistent with a lot of anime in terms of the style, but the the story and a lot of the, a lot of it just feels – very influenced by Western culture and Western science fiction. And it feels like an issue of Heavy Metal Magazine or something like that. It, it does. Yeah. Both of these films, in my opinion, feel like they're heavy metal come to life in a lot of regards. It, this sort of the, the sci-fi fantasy elements of that. And, and of course, the, 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 the violence and the nudity and just the aspects well, that... Speaking of the nudity, I have a very important question for you. Yeah. I need yeah. to, an, an explanation. In some scenes... There are stars strategically yes. placed over the nipples. Yes. In some scenes, the girls have no nipples. 
Yep. And then at the very end, when Catherine lays down on this slab that's going to lower into the ground so that like the triplets can like achieve their grand destiny, she yep. has these incredibly hot nipples. And I was like, all right, I'm loving the nipple play. Like tweak my nipples all day long. I, you, you can twist my t- titties all you like. But I was like, there's an, uh, a stunning lack of consistency when it comes to the depiction of nipples in this. I, do you have any, have you, have you devoted any time and energy to understanding what's at play here? Well, I did make note of this and I thought about bringing this up as well because I, I caught this as well. I, I don't know if it's a, just a continuity error or if it's a, and if it's a creative choice or if, or is it like a taboo thing where like you can't show them prominently? Because I know like in the, in the past with like Japanese like porn films, sometimes different parts of the body would be blurred out. You'd be watching porn, but they would still blur out certain parts. Yeah. And so I, I didn't know if that was like a cultural thing or what, but it's definitely, you, you get, as I said, three different versions of the female nipple in this, depending upon the circumstances. And all three of these sisters are, even the robot chick, they're all smoking hot. So if you like the female form, you will find much to enjoy in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think, I'm trying to remember, I'm just looking for the rating here. I mean, they don't have the same rating system in Japan, but when it was released in the U.S., I believe it got a PG rating, which I don't <laughs> think... I, it, it had to have been an edited version, which makes me wonder if they, if perhaps they were thinking about this in the production, the fact that this may get wider distribution and they may need to edit certain elements out and having a woman be, look like she's just wearing a tan bodysuit, right? With yeah, it's no, like Chitara and the Thundercats. She's basically yeah. naked with like some right. leopard spots painted on her or like cheetah you spots. You could get away with that, right? You could get away and say, oh yeah, she's just, she's sort of like this alien being. She doesn't have any real genitalia. She just has like a bodysuit on or something. So that's the only thing I can think of is that maybe they were thinking ahead to the possibility of it getting a, a release in the, you know, in Europe or the States where maybe they wouldn't be as open <laughs> to. But I do love the fact in both of these films, that they treat these as films. They don't look at them, as we've discussed before, as kids' movies or not at all. Or yeah. for one demographic. They're just like, these are movies, and the story includes some nudity or lovemaking or whatever it might be, and that's part of the story. Yeah. And it Hardcore genre films for... I guess all ages watch. if the kids are yeah. really cool, but yeah, these are yeah. hardcore genre films... That bring their A game, and they're they're basically everything that I want genre films to be, where you have wild, unrestrained imagination, insane action, incredible eroticism. But like, I like my genre films to really go for it. And both these movies, they're not tapping the brakes anywhere. I mean, it, probably more so with Gold Gold Thirteen. I mean, I would say that because of the vi- the in- increased violence in that film compared this one has some violence but it's not nearly it's, but it's fun violence rat- it's like oh cobra he's having right. to run out of this room he's like oh no and he's kind of yeah, like he's it's always a little like more tongue in cheek yeah, yeah, yeah. and and a lot of the villains are like ro- are androids or something you know so he's like destroying them um although a lot of the uh of dominique's um snow gorillas do get um blown away sort of yeah. brutally murdered you yeah. know and burned and uh in that battle but yeah it's it's definitely uh i i just like the fact that they're that they don't and and this is true for most anime they don't shy away from what the story needs you know certainly there's some that's you know trying to be provocative i don't think these films are trying to be provocative it's totally organic to the story it's just part of what those stories and films 
wanted to tell and it's integrated into it, 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 it there's not too much of it. Yeah, it's or not gratuitous. It's just high octane cinema. And exactly. there's a big difference. I feel like when you're being gratuitous, it's like, oh, well, we're going to show you Winnie the Pooh and suddenly Winnie the Pooh is going to start butt fucking piglet. It's like, all right, well, maybe you're being gratuitous. <laughs> you're just trying to shock people. But in the context right. of these crazy fucking genre films, all the violence and sex feels totally like a part. Like a, it's, it feels very at home in the context yeah. of the story. Well, let's talk about Golgo yeah, because sure. we, we keep uh, making references to it. For me, this is one of my favorite animated films I've ever seen. I, I, ca I caught it at a very impressionable age where I wasn't like a snooty cinephile yet, but I was a rabid movie freak. And so, like I said, right, right on the mid-90s, and I graduated from high school in 95, but in that transition point between high school and college, and in the first couple of years of college as well, we were just getting inundated with all these great Japanese animated movies, like suddenly Ghosts in the Shell has been shoved our way, Ninja Scroll has been shoved our way, and I was like, wow, they're just, like, there's, there's nothing that the Japanese can't do, and then I just, because it was one of those movies that was on every shelf and every video store, I was like, I'll, I'll have a look at Gogo 13 The Professional. <laughs> Like they took all the style and music and sex appeal and danger of classic film noir and combined it with like a late 60s. Like if James Bond had been an assassin for hire instead of a secret agent, he would resemble Golgo 13. Because this guy, it's back to basics. He's got a knife. He occasionally has a little like snub nose revolver and he's got his big ass M16 that he's always attaching like um, a scope to like because he uses it as a sniper rifle. But there's no real high tech gadgets. It's just a guy who makes love to a lot of pretty women and fights a lot of exotic, colorful characters. And, and just I mean, the villains are as cool and as dangerous as like the rogues gallery of Batman. And I just think everything about this movie from the style in which it, the story unfolds. It's just, it's, it's a complete and total home run. I have no idea how many times I've watched it now, but I feel like I finally have seen it for real because I never realized until now just how beautifully composed all the shots are. The shot composition is fucking next level, and you really don't see that until you've seen it properly unfold in a, in a widescreen format. Agreed, yeah, and I, I think I mentioned to you, I mean, we, we talked about this there beforehand. There are so many different Google 13 films and shows and and we were both like, are we are we watching the same one? Was yeah, yeah, yeah. I was paranoid. I was like, because I, I didn't want to record. I'm like, oh, well, I saw the, the show from 2013 or whenever. I'm like, no, you got to see that. 1983. Yeah. What I'm talking about? I had seen an early version, but it was not this version. It was something else from like, the 90s or something. But yeah, it, it, it did spawn a whole, you know, 
library of content out there. But um, yeah, anyway, I, I was able to watch, thankfully, on Amazon Prime, they have the full uncut original um, widescreen HD version of, of the Goal Goal 13, The Professional, 1983. <laughs> and so yeah. the, the film that started all, obviously this was based also off a, off a graphic novel, but it, um, this is the film that, that kicked off. I think there are three films overall, and then there's all these shows as well. Right, um, I, mean, I, I, look, I looked this up. This, this just gives you an idea of the, the enduring popularity of this character. Yeah. So the comic started in 1968. It was a Japanese manga series. And then, but by this point now, it is it has sold 280 million copies in various formats, including compilation books, making it the second best-selling uh, best manga series ever. It's been adapted into two live-action features, an anime film, an original video animation, and an anime television series, and six video games. And yet, 99 out of 100 Americans, I bet, have, could not tell you who Golga 13 is. But clearly, <laughs> yeah. this is a character with enormous popularity. I mean, 280 million copies sold. I don't know what you need to be on the New York Times bestseller list, but it's definitely nowhere near 280 million copies. No. That's a lot of fucking comics they're moving. It is, it is. No, it's a fantastic film in, in so many regards. And uh, again, as you mentioned, very reminiscent of 60s James Bond. Both these films, again, have these opening title sequences that feel like they're right out of a... A Mari Spender title sequence, yeah. Yeah, you, uh, even the music that they use, which is in Japanese, it, it sounds like a James Bond movie. And Can the, you sing the Pray For You theme song? Uh, I cannot. <laughs> pray for you, pray for you. But yeah, it's a, it's a dope song. It's like, whenever yeah, you hear it kick I, in, you're like, all right, Golgo 13 is going to... Or Duke is going to fuck some people up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's a it's a blast of a movie though. It has it has so much action in it and it, you know gratuitous <laughs> violence. But um, you know once you get past that, if it, it you really just get hooked on it. I mean at first you're like oh my god, you know like this is this is super violent. But <laughs> for, you know because again we're so accustomed in U.S. animation for for violence to just be very you know very tame very Absolutely. bloodless very yeah, sanitized exactly so uh but once you get into it it's just it's a ride and and it just it yeah it's it's a pretty i'm so i was so glad that it was on amazon prime i mean it's 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 such a great that's a what's one of the great things about this day and age of of streaming is that we're finally getting access to uh good version good original versions of these films in ways that were hard to get in the past, and uh, it, yeah, so anyone who has not seen it, if you have Amazon Prime, it's it's there waiting for you. <laughs> to I mean, watch. at the risk of hyperbole, I'll say that this movie has everything that I want from genre entertainment, and yeah. you have a, a badass hero who doesn't talk much. And obviously, that's whether you're talking about Mandalorian or Yojimbo or the man with no name. Like that's just a classic heroic archetype: the man who says little but lets his actions speak uh, louder than, etc. You've got ridiculously beautiful girls, both villains as well as heroes and inventors and allies, but just a, a who's who of just pieces of ass left and right. And then you've got these exotic, colorful villains. Like you got like initially what, who seem like they're going to be really terrifying villains, these three kind of psychos for the CIA, but then they get completely, utterly decimated and destroyed by Snake. 
And then you also have later in the movie, Gold and Silver being introduced. These guys from this, uh, what was it, the uh, the Banzabar experiment where you yeah, get this great... Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, I'm you just get this, this villain origin story where they describe how they took 40 assassins, they dropped them off in this jungle with no food and no weapons just to see how long they would last with the... In theory, the mission of killing 2,000 soldiers or guerrillas in the area, and these are the only two people who survived and completed the mission, and they're total psychopaths, but they wear gold and silver armor, and fucking Golga 13 has to take them on toward the end of the movie. Well, not only if you go back to that story, uh, what I love about it is they say that within 10 days, um, like half of the men were, were killed, yeah. uh, died or were killed. And then, but by the end of the experiment, not only did these two guys, gold and silver, survive, but they killed what was it, a thousand, two thousand, uh, two thousand soldiers, two thousand <laughs> guerrilla soldiers on top of that. So, yeah, it was the, it was sort of this weird government experiment. And I do love how in the film how they talk about how, you know, the villain uh, hires the FBI, the CIA, and and quote unquote the Pentagon. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. He's gonna hire the Pentagon. You know? it's such, <laughs> It's such a Japanese kind of misunderstanding or, or misinterpretation of sort of what it's like their view on America. Sort it's of. basically they, the full power of the U.S. government yeah. is bought and paid for and being hurled at Duke every single day. He's just like he's just, he's a guy. Yeah. I mean, he's got he's got an informer who tells him certain things about missions, and he's got a few people who supply him with guns and cars. But he's basically he's a one man operation. So it's him versus. The entire military, yeah. <laughs> the Western world, and right. he just keeps kicking their ass one fight after another. It's so right. goddamn great. Yeah, it's 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 pretty. Uh, yeah, and then uh, one thing that's interesting, and uh, you know, and I read a little more about it, but it is the first uh, hand-drawn animated movie to incorporate um, CGI animation with the live action. Yeah. And it has an uh, age. Sorry, sorry, well, sorry. The, uh, with the hand drawn. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, in particular, there's a few shots in the opening title title sequence of like a gun. Yep. And there's also, uh, a very notable scene towards the end where there are these army helicopters sort of flying into New York yeah. to, Dawson's the the city is CGI and the helicopter. Yeah. Like the helicopters that take out Snake are CGI yeah. helicopters. Exactly. And that whole sequence is CG. But again, it's integrated into uh, – it was in the like absolute infancy of this technology. And those shots do not, as you said, do not age well because they were rendered you know, at a time when you didn't really have – HD technology, the ability to render them at high resolution. So you're looking at sort of low resolutions, computer generated imagery that has been integrated into, uh, you know, hand drawn animation that was been, that was shot with a 35 millimeter. Yeah, even in like 95 or 96, whenever it was when I first saw this on VHS, even then I was like, ooh, that yeah. doesn't look all that good. I'm glad they introduced the innovation because obviously every filmmakers need to explore the frontier and they need to right. you look for new stylistic innovations and so it's a bit of an achilles heel where you've got like duke dodging bullets and running around and, and the animation the animation is so gorgeous and so stunning and it keeps being intercutted with the cgi stuff You're like ah damn i wish you just hadn't done this so it does distract you a bit in like the latter part of the flick but yeah. everything else works so well that it's a it's, it's a, so it's, minimal. It's and, a minor quibble. Yeah, yeah, it's very minimal. It's use, but like you said, sometimes it's important that these filmmakers do test these new technologies and new techniques because that's the only way we move forward. You know, I, I do think it probably would have been better if it was all traditional, but 
again, it was a choice they made probably just to see if it would work and more than anything. And it's there. (laughs) It's part of the history of, of animation. And, uh, and I'll let the listeners judge if they, if they think it worked or not. But, um, yeah, well, also, it, just you compare it to some of the other sequences that work so well. Like this movie yeah. does this a couple of times where you'll have essentially like porn music all while Gogo 13 lays waste to the bad guys. So it'll be sometimes it's saxophone, sometimes it's trumpet. But anytime you hear the saxophone or the trumpet, you're like, oh shit, either he's about to get laid or he's about to get in a fight. There's this one scene where Dr. Z, um, she's swimming, uh, she's swimming nude as to this beautiful saxophone music, all while her father's goons sort of take out Duke. And so you're cutting back and forth to this astonishingly hot girl swimming in the nude, like in fountains and waterfalls, all while Gogo 13 is like dodging bullets and stabbing guys and killing guys. And it's just that contrast. Some might say, oh my God, this is like really fucking cheesy, but the animation's so gorgeous and it's so sincere. Yeah. I completely just buy into it. It's like neo-noir in France. Like, it's almost like French, film noir from America, French neo-noir, and like Japanese animation all come together to this beautiful hybrid. And there are not a lot of movies that have this kind of style, like just this like very distinctive, original, intoxicating style. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the, the female characters, uh, my favorite line is from Rita, the mechanic. She's awesome. Uh, that supplies Golgo with his sort of getaway car and everything. And I don't, again, this may not be the actual translation, but the subtitled translate, translation, she says to him, you don't need to pay this time, but Duke, can you pull my trigger just once? <laughs> quietly. And then she says quietly and gently. <laughs> just wow. like that. That's the dialogue. Now, maybe that's not a literal translation. Maybe that's how the translator interpreted it. But I'm like, what? That's 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 brilliant. <laughs> but the sex scene with Rita is hysterical because it's silhouette of them, like she's riding them and they're going through all these different positions. And you have these crazy colors. It's like she must like live in like in this like psychedelic bordello. But she's got all these crazy <laughs> patterns on the wall, and all she's doing is talking about. What a badass he is, and what a study is, and like right, how he, right. how he can de- defeat all of his enemies and make love to all the girls. But it's like it's every teenage boy's like male fantasy, like right, taken right. to the most ludicrous extreme. But it it just works. So once again, like because the style is so sincere, like it's not winking, it's not ironic. You just surrender to its spell. And maybe the best example of this at one point, 
uh, I think his name is Brannock or Braddock or he's got like, you know, a giant army of guys with like missile launchers and grenade launchers and uh, Gogo 13's car goes up and over this rise. They shoot it with every missile known to man. There's fire all over the place. And suddenly you hear the trumpet music and Gogo 13 just comes walking through the flames with his gun out. And you're like, oh my fucking God. And this, the, the, and then the action begins, but it all unfolds like this big, crazy, elaborate dance. Probably no more so yeah. Then the elevator scene where Snake and Gogo 13 fight, which might is probably the best elevator fight scene in movie history. Maybe well, that Captain America Winter Soldier scene is pretty damn good. I, but, I love that scene, anyway, but you don't get the yeah. sense that Captain America and these agents of uh, of Hydra are having like a dance party. No, no, Gogo 13 and Snake yeah. are having like a dance party with like knives and knees and elbows and yeah. just beating the and, fuck and, out of each other. You, the other good thing because it, there's they don't hold back. You just really feel like, you know, that Duke might really get hurt here. Like, and he does. He gets stabbed early on. We haven't really seen him get hurt at all in the movie. And suddenly Snake, who's just this giant, like lengthy, I mean, I don't even know how to describe him. He's like half snake, half human, but he just, he moves in such a terrifying way. So lean and so efficient. But early in the fight, he jabs one of his knives into Golga 13's belly. So from that point on, he's compromised. Yeah. And he did actually, after that scene that you mentioned, uh, which was in San Francisco, after that hit in San Francisco, I believe, where he walks through the fire, he does get shot. That's true. Injured. He has to go in recovery yeah. for a while. He gets, he gets yeah. one, as the, that guy Brannock or Braddock, whatever his name yeah. is, as he's dying, he lets one bullet fly that does hit Golga right near his heart. So he has to kind of go away for a while and heal he and recover. He kind of hides out and, yeah. and recovers and sort of comes back for, you know, to, to take down Dawson. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it, that scene in the scene uh, the hit in San Francisco also has a great animation sequence which is all hand drawn where he snipes through another building's yeah, office. Yeah, was it Don Hughes? Paint. It's like yeah. Howard Hughes and Donald Trump like had a baby, and it's Don yeah. Hughes, and he's this giant, fat, like disgusting guy having this like orgy in his uh, his luxury apartment with like four or yeah. five women, and they think he's safe because the only building from which you could get a vantage point to shoot him, there's a there's another skyscraper in between the two blocking the view, but they finally showed that Golga 13 has found this one spot. Where if you shoot just perfectly and you follow the bullets, this little cluster goes like, and you follow them through the building, like through. I mean, it's and it's like it barely gets through, and then you go across the big gap, and then enough of them hit the bulletproof glass to break it to allow one bullet through and to kill the guy. It's it's like the most badass assassination scene you've ever seen. Yeah, it really is. It's a great sequence, and I kind of you know, I I kind of predicted that. I remember that that they they set it up in a way where the the guys who are sort of trying to his, I guess, security detail, the guys who are trying to protect them are, are scoping out every possible place he could come from. And they, they mention that it's like the top of a beer company or something like a beer. What it's something funny too. Like this, like, I don't know, like American beer or something weird. Like they always, everything's really their perception of America. And that's the other thing too, is that it, as a Japanese film, it's pretty much a very American story in terms of the setting. Yeah, the yes, locations, yeah, absolutely. He goes to Sicily at one point, you know, but, you know, it's a lot, the whole end is in New York, you know, it's 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 their sort of interpretation of American culture. And like one point you see, uh, when, when he's in New York, you see a movie theater and it says, you know, a cinema, 
but cinema is spelled wrong. <laughs> it's like in English spelled wrong. It's just like you can tell they're not they didn't have all their uh, their facts together. But it, regardless, it's it's a brilliant film. And um, and, and the ending, of course, uh, I guess, leaves as a standalone film. They wanted to leave it somewhat ambiguous as to whether he survives. You know, he meets um, on the street uh, a prostitute who turns out to be the it, it was the, the wife, the daughter-in-law of the of the main bad guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Of the man who was the first man that he killed, right? That it was yeah. uh, who, as it turns out, spoiler alert, Robert hired an assassin to kill himself, and that's one of the big mysteries of this movie. It's like, how come you're so pissed at the assassin? Why aren't you pursuing? whoever hired the assassin. And the, right. as we learned, it's because the person who hired the assassin was his own son who's gone. And yeah, it's, it's a really cool revelation. Like this guy is throwing all these resources at him, but yeah, but it's a fair point. Like if, if your son gets killed, the person who pulled the trigger, he's just the trigger man. It's yeah. whatever organization might be behind it. But they're in this case, the only person he can take out his revenge on is Golgo 13. Right. He needs to, uh, to do something to, I guess, you know, unburden his conscience, you know, uh, for essentially being his fault, you know, in, 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 in an essence for not being the father he needed to be for his son. Oh, he's, but, he's uh, just evil incarnate. I mean, at one point yeah. he basically gives his daughter-in-law to snake to yeah. just rape for like a week straight because that's part of snake's payment to go after Golgo 13. And I mean, snake is like one of the most terrifying villains I've ever seen. Like people get afraid of like the Joker. It's like Joker's got fucking nothing. Imagine Joker. <laughs> if he could like slide, like I mean, the first time we see him when he's about to fight, not actually it's not the first time we see him, but the first time we see him in combat when he slides out of that helicopter, like a snake, but he's sliding upside down and backwards and yeah. the music kicks in. And you're like, what the fuck? The way he moves is so specific and so unique to his character. And the fact that he has no teeth, and even though he's lean, he seems incredibly strong and incredibly fast. I just think he's one of the best terrifying, evil, fucked up villains from the world of manga or comics that I've ever that I've ever encountered. There's no one quite like him. And the fact that he gets such good music and such good fight scenes, I think he's one of the great, just perverse, psychotic, serial killer villains that I've ever seen in any sort of genre entertainment. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, too, because these, these villains, at least you know, Dawson and his son, are, I guess, supposed to be Americans, but they very much have Japanese cultural sensibilities. The whole idea you know, of the, you know, the, on, the, the, the honor and not being able to live up to his expectations. Like they're, they're, again, it's interesting how – and you don't really even know if Golgo is what, what nationality he is. They don't really make that clear, do they? At any In the point? comics, there's very little known. I mean yeah. from the way he's drawn, he's Asian, but I'm assuming he's right. Japanese since he's a Japanese character. But right. there's almost nothing known about him, which is once again going back to that man with no name kind of heroic archetype. Right. You don't know who he is. You don't know where yeah. he comes from. All you know is that he's really good at what he does, and it's, it's, he's it's, he's just he's really good with the sniper rifle. That's kind of his his go to mo. But he also obviously can drive fast and fuck well and all, all that good stuff. But his big thing <laughs> is you hire him to shoot somebody from a distance. That's that's kind of his yeah. whole identity. But he's good at all types of killing, of course. And uh, uh, one one interesting thing for people uh, that like Quentin Tarantino, he's a big fan of this film, and he uh, uh, obviously paid homage to it in Kill Bill Volume 1 uh, when you, if you get about 40 minutes in, there's the uh, chapter 3, the origin of Oren Ishii, and it's a whole animated sequence which he sort of tried to mimic the, the style of, of this film in particular, but um, 
you know, animate in general, but this film was sort of, I think it was many considered his inspiration for that sequence. So if you haven't seen that in a while, it's a, I rewatched that scene. Oh, it's and dynamite. It's, it's pure it's dynamite. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Osamu Dezaki has been very influential to a lot of different filmmakers. Like you could, the question is like, what's more influential, the source material or his interpretation of it? Like Alexandra Aja, who's done a lot of good movies and had a big hit this past year with Crawl. Or was it just Crawl? Crawl. Yeah, the movie's yeah. just called Crawl. But he's working on a space adventure Which, Cobra adaptation. You know, considered one of his favorite movies of the year. Absolutely, so that, absolutely. Yeah, so. But it's like, I guess, which is which is more important, the original source material or the movies that helped make them famous. And I guess right. the reality is probably both, but I do know that Alexander Aja is working on a space adventure Cobra, but you, when we were texting in the night, talking about how killer Golgo 13 is, you're like, Oh my God, like how come somebody hasn't like made this into a really good movie? Like, I don't know if you, if lightning can ever strike so devastatingly effectively again in the same place. But, I mean, obviously the live action came first. There was a live action one in 1973 and it was filmed entirely in the imperial state of Iran with an entirely Persian cast. And then you've got the uh, Japanese one with Sonny Chiba from 1977. So people have tried it. But if somebody tried to make a live-action movie of this, the same way like Robert Rodriguez did with the, like, Alita Battle Angel, right? I don't know if it could ever come close because you... I'm just. I was just surprised that no one ha in Hollywood has attempted to do it. Like you could almost see after John Wick, you could see somebody like Keanu Reeves in this role. Yeah. You know, with his hair slick. You know, being much more clean shaven and much more. You know. Um. Uh, you know, they would have to. Maybe he's a little too old now. Well, you know who you get is but. um. Is it Henry Golding, the actor who is um? He's in Crazy Rich Asians, which a lot of people recognize him from. But his oh, big, yes. Yes. But he and was he's, in. He playing. He's playing Snake Eyes in the upcoming GI Joe movie. But he's also in the new Guy Ritchie movie, The Gentleman, which I saw a couple days right. ago, and he plays one of the villains. And he's so fucking charming and so badass and so evil and so hardcore. Like Henry Golding could play fucking Golgo thirteen standing on his head. He would he would be. And he's idea. probably the right age. Actually, they would. I, you kind of feel like he should be somebody around thirty, you yeah. know, or thirties, at least based on yeah. young, you know, good looking. Got, and he's he's from Malaysia, not from Japan, but still like, right. uh, you know, in terms of international markets. Okay. As yeah. we said, it doesn't really matter because you don't really know for sure where his origins lie. He may you know he may be Asian, but you don't know what part of that world he's from. Yeah, he's, he's obviously he's an international man of mystery <laughs> indeed but, yeah i mean he's he's a great character and like you said before he doesn't say much if anything uh throughout the film and and that's a key component i mean uh, they've done this there are characters like this that don't talk I mean, there's that was that movie soldier with uh kurt russell where he had like eight words in the entire movie or something so there are films like that where actors don't say much but then they really have to act in other ways they have to perform you know, throughout without dialogue. And I think finding the right actor would but, be key to this. But, but also, there's a one scene early on where he quite yeah. literally is laying on a slab, totally motionless while another girl makes love to him. But he's like, oh, he's yeah. so stoic. He's just yeah. like, I'm not gonna make an expression. I'm not gonna move up. And the girls who are like, she's screaming in pleasure and she's like writhing in ecstasy. And I was just, howling with laughter because like that right. is the ultimate man who says and does nothing he just lies there he's like i'm just gonna be intense and i fuck like a porn star <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what it is it's almost like he's been so well trained not to feel pain he also can't really feel pleasure you know it's like because you can't 
feel one without the yeah, other. He makes right? love so, compulsively without joy. Oh no. Yeah. Oh yes. Like yeah. I mean, Big Lebowski. Like, <laughs> right. like I'm sorry, your mom's a nympho. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it it would. Like I said, I'm not saying someone should make it because why not just watch this movie? It's so it's all right there. It's just one of those situations where I'm surprised that, and I mentioned this as well. I do think that uh, Luc Besson uh, drew some inspiration with his per, the professional or 100%. we own. You know, there are certain some elements. You know, like at the end when the entire SWAT and police force is like descending on him uh, in in the building, and he's to take them all on. That's very reminiscent of how like the entire US you know uh, military and the CIA and FBI are all sort of going after this one guy and he's just got to survive using nothing but his skill yeah and, the beginning of John Wick 3 when the entire city's after him and things like yeah. that but i feel like you could if people didn't know this movie was from 1983 and you were to swap out the helicopter sequence for just more hand drawn animation yeah. you could release this movie today and people totally. are like, oh my god, like this is the most entertaining fucking movie ever made. <laughs> it just it's there's so, when you see something as good and as effective as this, it makes so many other assassin movies or genre films or whatever the case may be just seem so cautious and risk averse by comparison yeah. to just to give us a villain as disgusting as snake. I mean, just like his body language sitting there in a wine cellar, like pouring wine in his palms and licking out of his hands. Like so much about him is so animalistic, but at the same time, he's incredibly devious and clever and effective as well. It's just everything about this movie. It's geared toward people who like high octane entertainment, like no cowards are allowed. And in the world of global cinema, it's hard to get those kinds of movies made. But I guess if you kept the budget low, but I guess the beautiful thing is you don't need to worry about these considerations because the movie exists. It's on Amazon. Like this movie has exactly. been made and it can be enjoyed until the end of time. And I sort of hope that it gets the same treatment that Space Adventure Cobra got with a real proper 4K restoration with HDR because um, not that it, it looks great on Amazon, no question, but it it there's a night and day difference between watching Space Adventure Cobra in 4K and this because it really just, as I said, the color and you really just feel the texture of the art, almost of the paint and artwork. It's just beautiful. And I feel like if they could do that, if they could give this film the same level of restoration, uh, it, they should, it should get a, a re-release theatrically. Yeah. It's the kind it's, of movie that it deserves to mention alongside has, Akira and all the other big yeah. ones, Ghost in the Shell and Ninja Scroll. Like there's certain seminal Japanese animated movies, and I feel like people know this movie, but whenever I talk, or about they know it, of the character more yeah. than they do maybe the, this particular film. That's like that was my situation. Yeah, I got knew a very of the cool character. look, a very distinctive yeah. look. They're aware of it, of it, but they may not have ever had access to the original uncut full length you know, 83 film. And, um, uh, that, that's again, the one you have to watch, <laughs> you know, all this other stuff that is out there. Is, if you want to explore further, great, but yeah, I, I actually did buy on comiXology, a collection yeah. of the very first series of manga with the character from 1968. And, oh. I, was, and I was, of course I started reading through it and I was like, all right, like, give me the titties. Like, give, give me, give me all the craziness. But it's like, <laughs> I was actually like, kind of shocked at how, tame and conservative so i guess like they had to kind of ease into it probably what i probably should have bought was like a manga from like 1975 or 76 once they really kind of got their feet under them and really knew what the character's all about but i was actually kind of caught off guard 
by I mean, once again 1968 it's a very different era from 1983 so but yeah. I, I i do plan on checking we were, out more everyone than was still um there was still a tameness in the 60s that started was starting to go away yeah. even even in u.s you know even in japan but all over the world and with with cinema in general uh and you know the rate i think the rating system came into effect in like 68 69 in the u.s so that's when there's this shift started to take place where oh we can actually show nudity and violence yeah like seijun suzuki was doing some wild movies live action movies in japan in the late 60s and they're great gangster movies things like branded to kill and tokyo drifter they're fucking awesome but in the early 70s with like kinji fukusaku making things like battles of honor and humanity suddenly like it seems like all of japan just or at least all the film community in Japan started smoking crack. Cause like you start getting these wild, like sex movies, like in the realm of the senses, uh, who did it in the realm of the senses? I'm totally, um, I was at, uh, uh, Nagisa Oshima. Is that his name? Hang on. I just want to make sure I get that right. Cause I'm, I'm fucked up so many other names over the course of this <laughs> Nagisa Oshima. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, that's how you say his name, but like, in the realm of the senses, which is one of the most wild erotic movies ever made. And so yeah, Japan in the seventies, like they, they took the gloves off in a big way, but late sixties, they were, they were still kind of warming up for the, 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 right. the craziness. To they come. were sort of testing the water to see how far you could push things in audio, you know, in terms of mainstream, content not obviously there was always you know more erotic or pornographic content out there to be found but in terms of mainstream films and shows it was it, it they had to to ease in to see how far i mean by like the mid late 80s when you start getting like legend of the overfiend like a rotsuka doji it's like oh my god like that's when you get like the proliferation of like tentacle porn and also although you can look at like wood what do they call my like, guy like, not wood carvings but there's like drawings on wood that japan was doing like hundreds of years ago and even then it shows like women making love to like octopuses and things like that so <laughs> yeah the japanese uh, I guess curiosity about extreme forms of entertainment. <laughs> it's long, is, it's long always, and respectable and traditional. And it's always interesting because they're such a reserved culture in, in sort of a outwardly sense, you know, yet these things are going on. <laughs> well, I always talk about how when I went to Japan while I was in business school, we would go to these meetings and it was so fascinating seeing the ritualized aspects of a business meeting, the exchange of gifts, the exchange of business cards, the bowing, how you bow, when you bow, how you hold your card with both hands. You don't just flip some on your business card. You hold it with both hands and extend it as you bow. It's, it's incredibly important, all these little mannerisms and rituals. But then you'd go to dinner afterwards and the sake would start to flow. And then it was like, the laughing and the shit talking. And I was like, Whoa, this is a totally different universe. <laughs> like, the, it's like, it's I, I, like I was all in. Is, uh, has two sides. Absolutely. Know, like, so yeah, Japan's a fascinating place. I, I'm dying to go. I haven't been to Japan since 2007, but I was absolutely riveted. I, I spent a couple of days in Tokyo and a couple of days in uh, Kyoto and yeah, I just fell in love with it. The food's great. The animation's great. The art's great. I mean, there's a lot of things about Japan that I really, really love and adore. Yeah, definitely. Well, what do no, you got coming up in the immediate uh, foreseeable future in terms of your film and television watch? I know you're going to be watching Picard. Anything, oh, yeah. anything on the horizon? Are you excited about the Oscars or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoy watching the Oscars. Um, I, I just, you know, I didn't actually watch all of them, but I was interested in the recent SAG Awards because my wife is in SAG and we, and she, you know, we get all of her screeners. So we've been, we watched most of the films that were, were nominated and which which tend to be the same films that 
you know, go on for, for producers guild and yeah, golden globes and cable yeah, ace awards. Like it's kind of like, they don't know how to think differently. They just sort of take, they all sort of take their cues from the golden globes and yeah. go from, you know, <laughs> but I can't remember which Woody Allen movie it was. But he was like, Oh my God, like all they do out of here is give each other awards. Like, and it's like, you know what? That's like, kind of fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, there's a little bit of a controversy because, um, I know internally because, uh, you know, parasite, which I loved, uh, won the essentially best, film award at the SAG Awards were best ensemble cast. But the question has arisen sort of, is this even, are these actors even in this American Screen Actors Guild? Um, is it even a, a, a SAG signatory? Meaning uh, was gotcha. And uh, I guess they're, you know, under the laws or rules of SAG-AFTRA, they are allowed to nominate and honor uh, performances that are not necessarily um, SAG. But I think some SAG members are sort of saying, but isn't this our union? Shouldn't we be honoring the members of our union? This isn't the Oscars. It's not the Golden Globes. This yeah. is this is not about ad- recognizing the best recognize- in global entertainment. This is like, right. yeah, this is the best of SAG. Right. And so in, as from that point of view, shouldn't we be honoring the best of the films and of best of the actors who are in the union? They're all that, just racist. Yeah, I don't know. They don't like it's Parasite. Just, no, yeah, I... I I, I, Every organization has its weird um, rules and bureaucracies and whatnot, and no no organization more so than the Academy, which hasn't up, oh, really yeah. updated the rules since like 1947. It's like you know what, lots change in uh, showbiz since World War II. Maybe y'all should uh, take advantage of some of these changes. Yeah. And, stuff. Well, and, and again, I, I I read a lot of of the controversy surrounding you know the Oscar nominations and um, you know them not being diverse enough and all of this and. I, I just think that the way the media handles this, and even a lot of casual viewers, they don't seem to understand that the individual members who are in the academy, who are voting, aren't getting in a room and saying, oh, we're not going to nominate women or people of color or, you know, they're just voting on the films that they liked, and then they're tabulated, and whatever, and sometimes they can be really close. It can yeah. be like 51%. People think the Academy is like five people in a dark room yeah. with like cigars, like who are we going to fuck this year? It's like, no, these, are your, these are your peers with whom you work. It's so. the members of the Academy individually thinking to myself, what have I seen? Yeah. What do I, what did I like? And just checking some boxes essentially. And there, I don't think that they're necessarily trying to go out of their, maybe there are a few people who are, you know, you know, racist or sexist out there but or i think just the voting for their friends priority. a lot of academy voters yeah, like all right i'm friends. trying to support my friends i'm going to vote right. for my friends uh, what i think uh, someone's expl- said something much more articulate than i recently which i think would solve a lot of the academy's woes like the problem is not that the academy or that these organizations don't award awards to an, like a, a diverse enough uh, group of recipients the big problem is they're not enough of those people making the movies if like those movies get made the awards will follow so it's like if you really are that concerned with women getting like best director nominations at the golden globes or whatever the case might be what you need are more more movies directed by women so it's like like jessica chastain's a great we need an equal number of if you want them to have an equal chance you need equal number of women directors and male directors equal number of african-american actors and you know, Caucasian. Yeah. And then you'll and, see the awards will follow suit. But like Jessica Chastain right. has a rule with her manager. She says, every year I'm going to do one woman, one movie directed by a woman. So right. I feel like that's a great example of an actress who has box office clout putting her money where her mouth is to create opportunities. So I'm like, all right, that's a, a productive way to, and 
eventually, hopefully, achieve the goal that you would like to see, like more more women uh, nominees, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I lost my train of thought. What was I about to say? Oh, and like, oh yeah, coming up this year. Like, if you look at all the big superhero movies this year, whether you're talking about um, Birth of Prey, Black, Black Widow, Widow. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984, or The Eternals, every single one of them is directed by a woman. Like, you could, like, but you don't see, like, guys sitting around saying, like, well, how come they're not more superhero movies directed by men? It's just this year, there happen to be a lot of superhero movies directed by women. It's just, I think people like to assign intent where there's usually just chaos and yeah. unpredictability. And when it comes to people winning awards, I think it's much more chaotic than people would like to believe. People just love to see conspiracies in every shadow. Exactly. And 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 a lot of times there are these things can be really close. There there could have been for all we know, you know, five women directors who got 59% of, you know, the vote uh, or sorry, 49% and the the uh, their male counterpart got 51. It could have been super super close, but somehow the this year uh, the, there were a few more votes for those those films that were directed by men. I, I mean, again, I'm all for and want. My wife is a filmmaker and editor, and I want more work for her. I want more work for women, and that's the the answer, as you said, is we need to get more uh, women in high level positions, both directing, producing, uh, cinematographers, you know, all of it. Editors have always had a good percentage of female yeah there's certain fields where girls have yeah. always dominated whether it's like costume design or art director production designer right. like there's certain areas where the, the women have definitely uh done just fine or casting directors things like that right. but i feel like it's one of those things where if you're gonna yell and scream about something i feel like the best thing for people to do is to be an agent of that change by creating these opportunities and if you're really pissed that no women got nominated for whatever then produce a goddamn movie and hire a woman to direct. Like that's, that's, that's the best thing you yeah. can do. And then you will feel better about yourself that you are making, you're creating the kind of change that you would like to see. So right. yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in doing as opposed to complaining, but we live in the age of the internet. So people love to get online and yeah. talk it's shit just, and so on and so they forth. They like to look at it as some kind of conspiracy, as you said, you know, like a smoke filled room full of angry white men who are just deciding. The, the Don ah, Hughes character from Golga 13, the professional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sitting there, so buck ass nude with his giant gut, surrounded by naked women, saying, No, Greta Gerwig will not be nominated this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Make, make that movie. That, that's the movie I want to see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, where can people find you online if they want to talk more about Oscars or Japanese animation or Matthew Modine or whatever the case might be? <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter, at uh, Adam Rakoff, and that's my only, uh, currently my only uh, social media presence. And um, uh, yeah, I've, I'm always uh, happy to, I, I haven't been as active on Twitter lately. I've just been really busy with some of the other work that I mentioned and also coughing your lungs fighting, out, fighting this, uh, this illness. But, uh, but I try to, you know, uh, to check things out from time to time. I, I recently tweeted, I, I, I discovered that, um, that, uh, Spielberg's Steven Spielberg's, uh, classic episode of, of Columbo has been remastered in HD from the film negative. And oh, people all, got so excited over the tweet. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. And, and people were like, I, I can't tell you how many people said, Oh my God, I'm going to watch this right now. Oh my God, I'm going to watch this with my dad right now. And, and they all, you know, said the same thing. You're like, Oh, this looks, stunning oh this is amazing you know it's just it's a great episode too it's really just it has so many of spielberg's you know sort of uh there are so many signs of his greatness to come in that in that simple 
sort of murder mystery. It's not even a mystery. We, you in, in classic Columbo storytelling, you know exactly. You as the viewer know exactly what happened. It's Columbo that's trying to uh, un, 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 sort of solve the mystery. But uh, it actually is the very first episode. There were two films that came out first, but Spielberg directed the first episode of the ongoing series, which again, were like TV movies also, but it was the, the beginning of, of sort of Columbo's, um, I don't know, what was 30 years of, of, of being on TV. So yeah, if you're, if you're a Spielberg fan, it's a fun one to check out uh, from 1971. And yeah, it, it's, uh, he, he also directed, uh, what was it, you know, some of the, um, that Rod Serling show, um, what's not, what's it called? Not the Twilight Zone, the one he did after it. Uh, we, we just talked about it on the HP Lovecraft episode and I'm totally blank. It's called like Dark Past, what the hell is it? Rod Serling, Dark, something, not Dark. Night Gallery. Night Gallery, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a cool show without a doubt. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's like the late sixties, early seventies version of the Twilight Zone, but it's more yeah. of a, more of like a horror show. Right. But again, there are a lot of great directors. I think Joe Dante directed some episodes. There, you know, there's just a lot of the, the directors that we grew up with later on in the 70s and 80s were, were sort of getting their, uh, uh, their toes wet in directing at that point on these shows. So, yeah, it's, it's fun to revisit. That's one of the things I love about these, these streaming platforms is the ability to go back and, and, and see in, in a good quality some of these old shows that – Otherwise, we're you know very hard to, to to you know to catch when we you know in our time on rerun you know on TV yeah. you know it's there was once a time when you had to wait for a show to come on the air if you wanted to see a classic. Yeah, it's episode. a good and bad thing. On one hand, you're so much more invested when the opportunity to see something is rare. On the other hand, the ability to just completely immerse yourself in the work of a particular filmmaker. There's good and bad to it. Because on one hand, it feels more disposable. Maybe you appreciate it less. However, say you just really love one particular obscure filmmaker, just the ability to just, with no obstacles, completely explore their filmography. I think, obviously, I'm not, I would not want to take things back to the 1990s where you, it's impossible to fucking find anything. Yeah. But I, I guess the work that I had to put into hunting down the work of particular filmmakers makes me really appreciate the work. And it makes me wonder like, well, do I like them because of the hunt or do I like <laughs> right. them just the because of, of like, the, 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 the final product? And it's probably, probably yeah. the reality is probably a bit of both, but yeah, there's a, there's something exciting about, there was at least for me, something exciting about finding those rarities and, and, you know, and, and holding that copy in your hand and then being able to uh, really just, appreciate it because it took it, it took a while to get it and well, tarantino was on um rewatchables recently he did three episodes in a row where they talked about dunkirk um uh what's that tony scott runaway train movie and oh, unstoppable unstoppable yeah. and then they talked about king of new york we talked about how in the 70s he would see you know a hundred grindhouse movies a year a lot of genre films that most of them were awful but three percent would be these classics and they felt that much better 
because yeah. of all the shit you had to go through to find <laughs> right. this one gem. So sometimes you might be inclined to overrate or maybe exaggerate the qualities of particular movies because of the amount of work it took to find these these grindhouse gems. And it's why he's so attached to so many of these movies from the 70s. It's because he sat through so many hundreds of hours of really shitty movies to find these Jack Hill movies or whatever the case might be. So, But for people out there who have not heard it, what's cool about Rewatchables is these guys are all from like the ringer. They're, they're sports guys. They're like, you know, like Bill Simmons and all them. Sports is their is like their great passion. But hearing them talk with Tarantino about a movie like King of New York, it just reminded me, I was like, wow, like the tone with which we discuss movies there's always room for improvement. I feel like some of them cinephiles perhaps keep people at arm's length by being a little bit too insular. And sometimes that's kind of cool to hear people who are really passionate and fired up, but come from a different vocation, also discussing movies and seeing how Tarantino was having so much fun with these guys. It was just it was an eye opener that there are a variety of ways to handle a film podcast. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting you mentioned you know Unstoppable. He Tarantino considers that one of the top ten films of the past ten years. And, um, you know, it, uh, you don't, it, it, you wonder, well, he worked, you know, it was directed by Tony Scott, whom he worked with early on in his career with True Romance. Yeah. So was it an attachment to yeah. that? He bought True Romance before yeah. Reservoir Dogs even got made. So. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe it was a sort of a, a, an affinity for him as a director and just, and that was one of his final, you know, Right, I mean, that's, one that's of his, his last movie before he yeah. died. Yeah, so, yeah and Tarantino so. does address that in the episode. He's like, yeah, he keeps trying to say like, I, mean, I, I love the guy. He helped give me my start, and so he's yeah. he's trying to separate his relationship from his reaction. But it is an interesting topic. Like great last movies by great directors. There are not a lot of great last movies by great directors. There are plenty. Of, I mean, every great director eventually has a last movie. Right. But most of them tend to be kind of embarrassments. But from Tarantino's point of view, Unstoppable. Like Tony Scott went out on a good one, but yeah. Yeah, I, I I remember thinking it was a fine movie, nothing extraordinary. Like it, I I remember enjoying it. I was entertained by it, but I didn't think of it as like this masterpiece. Well, he does. He loves the Denzel yeah. Tony Scott relationship, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you can talk about Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe all day. He's like, give me Denzel and Tony Scott, give me Crimson Tide, yeah. give me Man on yeah. Fire. It was a very fruitful collaboration between those two. I think they made five movies together. So yeah. But, Deja Vu, was that also Tony Scott? Yeah, and also um, uh, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. So yeah, Den- Denzel and Tony Scott, for whatever reason, just got along really well. And so yeah. it, was a, it was a great director-actor collaboration. But we're getting yeah. off topic again, which, no, is, what, no, no. which is what we Sorry. do. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this sucker up. But we yep. hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the podcast. All that gets up, leave a rating and review. And if you want some more content, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, because... It is like a couple hundred away from becoming 20,000. So I'm right around the corner from crossing that, that landmark. And then I'll be asking for y'all support to get me to 25,000. It's going to be a never-ending conversation. Every time I get close to a landmark, I'm going to be asking wrong real listeners to help push me to that next mark. But very excited to hit the big 20000. I don't know if I get said enough zeros. But in any case, you can always find me on Twitter at Colbrex. Thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, Onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.